Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome. Today we have a social innovator from the food industry, Frank Sinopoli from Grocery Neighbor. So, Welcome, Frank, and tell us a little bit about your education. Thanks, Peter. So about my educational background? Yes. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I'm a high school graduate. Um, My father passed um, very early on as I was exiting that, and that forced me into a direction of employment as my mother was very young when she moved to the country, and she had chosen, with the support of us, to go back to Italy at the time. So I was uh, at a position in life where the idea of affording school wasn't really uh, realistic. And uh, the let's say the cards that I had been served um, really forced me into the work life. So I'm only sitting in front of you with a high school diploma. Well, you've got a lot of street smart, Frank, and that's as important sometimes as education. Yeah, I think you learn most from experience. Uh, most from like you, every you learn more from failure than success, I should say. And you know, I've got a lot of failures under my belt, which led me to you know my successes. You know, Canada's first digital grocery coupon, Canada's first full Mayflower agent, the first B two C platform. But those are those are just the good. There's a lot of uh, stories along the way that didn't quite work out. Okay, well, let's get into your uh, post academic career and the different uh, jobs and businesses that you've worked with. Okay, yeah. So I started young. When I was 12 years old, I remember walking into a, like, was a dollar store type of um, retailer with my mother, and there was this purple box of chocolates that had individually wrapped chocolates in it, and they were selling it for a dollar. I immediately understood that it could be sold for more, so I convinced my mother to buy all of them for me. She became my creditor. I then had Henry Zakak, Ryan Gunn, and Chris Bostrui, local kids in my court, sell them door-to-door for me for $3 a piece. I let them keep a dollar. I got a dollar, and I put a dollar aside for my creditor, who was my mother at the time. And I remember, you know, being in a park with $100 in my pocket. You know, all my friends had Nikes. I had Psykes. They had Reebok pumps. I had Franklin pumps. You know, I never had any of those, you know, really fancy things. And I remember buying my first pair of shoes with that money and those shoes lasted me so long, but that was my first taste of entrepreneurship. Um, I then went on to work for Etel Pasta where I consolidated the product going into the store or into the warehouse. Um, That's when, um, that's when my father had passed. It was right. It was right in the middle of my, I guess my graduation, if you like graduation. Um, So I went to go work for Etel Pasta because my uncle was there. And it was the only place where I could essentially have a job that would understand that I wanted to be at the hospital any chance I could. Because, you know, for the the last three weeks of my father's life, I lived in the hospital by his side. It was was everything to me. But anyways, um, moving on, I, you know, from that moment, I had decided that I wanted to do great things for my family. I wanted to leave him in comfort because one of the things I remember, my dad, you know, the only thing he was scared about and cried about was what was going to happen to his family, what would be of us. So I had made a, you know, a commitment to step in and do something with my life. And at that point, 
I was uh, at Ital Pasta and I left there to go work for United Bandlines um, because I saw an opportunity to kind of get to know entrepreneurs from around the world because it was a dispatch role where I would be talking to the owners of these moving companies. Um, United Bandlines then bought the rights to Mayflower, which was the biggest name in the moving industry. And as a 20-year-old kid, I went and appealed to the board of directors of United Bandlines to become the first standalone Mayflower company. And Peter, they essentially laughed me out of the room. They said, like, listen, kid, where are you going to find a million dollars? You know, you work for head office, so we know you don't make much money. You know, and look around the table. Do you really want to start a trucking company? Now, my belief at the time was old industry, people with tunnel vision. If I come in there and add a little bit of technology, I could be very disruptive and build something really special. Um, but I needed a million dollars. And, you know, Jane and Finch kid, I didn't know where that was going to come from. So hunted down um, Biagio Bruni, who is the owner of Jazz Freight Forwarding. He was the seventh largest freight forwarder in the world. I tried to play the Italian card. He didn't care. <laughs> he didn't care about my $1 million request. He said, you know, I'm running a $7 billion freight forwarding company. Your million dollar investment is not really something I want to focus my time on. Um, but I kept at him and about three calls in, he finally said, okay, like just talk to my partners in Toronto. They own the rights to jazz Canada, John Garvey, Dave Waldock, see if they're interested. So I pitched these strangers, my thought of how I could kind of leapfrog the current, uh, transportation industry. And they looked at me and said, listen, we'll give you the money, but we want 50% of the company and We'll give you, uh, that's, you know, that's my face today, Peter. At the time I was a kid, I'm just thinking, I just want anything. This is what solidified the deal. They said, we're going to take 50%, but we're going to give you $120,000 salary day one. Peter, I was a kid from nothing. I mean, I had $120,000 salary to me. Like that was crazy for me, you know? So I jumped into that business and then I ran it and built it to be the second largest special products carrier within the United Van Lines and Mayflower system, 4,300 companies, one of the biggest trucking companies on the planet. And we built it to be the second largest special products carrier in the system. Five years in, I had this idea. It was Mingi. It was, I wanted people who like, let's, I'll just use painting as an example. If you wanted your room painted, instead of going out there and contacting all the painters, you would post the specifications. It would automatically notify all the painters and give them the opportunity to bid so that you would be able to saturate the market without having to actually pick up the phone, contact them all, wait for them. Nobody would have your personal information. They would just have the product, or the, the job details and the location. And then when you chose one, then they got the personal information and the deal was on. So I wanted to pursue this idea. So I sold, I exited that business successfully. I left Ranger to pursue Canada's or the world's first, I used to say, B2C, B2B, C2C platform. Trended worldwide on Twitter, uh, 438,000 registered users in three days, and it crashed. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never been in tech. The idea of user interface and intuitive behavior, these weren't words in my vocabulary. I had a good idea. Uh, I launched, a, I threw a launch party. All these celebrities showed up, you know, Fifi Dobson, Kanon. Arlene Dickinson walked into that room as well. Um, and I remember her saying, this is a great idea. I had it myself before. But all of that fun stuff that had transpired 
gone because my execution, you know, you went to the website and you went, what do I do now? Nobody knew how to use it. So I ended up being approached by some smart people that said, hey, kid, you don't know what you're doing, but you've got a really good database. We're going to buy this off of you. So I sold the database and I decided that I wanted to look into technology a little bit more. I wanted to pursue that. Um, so I decided I was going to launch a competitor in Groupon because in my mind, you were buying these coupons and let's say it was 50% off your dinner. I couldn't imagine being on a new date and then saying, hold on, I'll take care of this bill. And then I unfold an eight by 11, 50% off coupon. I just felt like there was like a stigma there. It, it wasn't, you know, didn't make people feel good. So I created the social parlor and it was a membership and it was a black sleek card that you would put down with your credit card. They would just know what to do. I went and I got the O and B group. I got a damn near every nightclub and restaurant in the, uh, in the city. And the day I launched it, Peter, I was featured in the Toronto star. And the day I launched it, I thought about Coupon, Canada's first digital grocery coupon. And I called Matt Barnes at the time. He was my partner. And I said, Hey, you've invested nothing into this business, right? I've put all the money. He's like, yeah. And so if I wanted to flush it down the toilet, it wouldn't be too sad. And he said, well, no, I would be sad because I thought we were going to build a company. And then I said, Coupon. I said, I want to build Canada's first digital grocery coupon. Get over to my place. By the time Matt had come to my apartment, I had the theater room covered in post-it notes, giant post-it notes, and it was the business model for Canada's first digital grocery coupon. We then embarked to go and raise capital. I found this guy. Um, he was, uh, I guess he has been born into money um, and then went on to become an angel investor. I heard about him through the grapevine, set up a meeting with the stranger. I said, I need a half million dollars to figure this all out. Um, and somehow I got that money, which led me then to be able to build the application. I then went out and I raised a million dollars before I even got into a grocery store. Then I raised, then I got into it. So then, so sorry, I should back up. I went to the brands. Brand said, how many retailers do you have and how many users do you have? I'll be right back. I went to the retailer and they said, how many brands do you have and how many users do you have? So what I realized is, is both parties didn't believe that anybody would be able to bring them together to formulate a plan that would actually be viable because nobody wanted integration, all these things that made the digital coupon scary. So what I did is I wrote myself, you know, I was still a kid at the time, I guess, I wrote a letter of support and intent. And it was a nine binding document. All it said was, hey, Coca-Cola, would you agree to distribute digital coupons if Loblaws agrees to accept them? Non-binding, I just want to know, do you want to get rid of this paper? Because Peter, there are eight hands touch a coupon after you give it to the cashier. When I looked at the amount of waste created and what we're doing to this beautiful planet as a result of a 50 cent coupon, it was disgusting. So I really had this big vision of eliminating the paper, reducing carbon footprint, but I needed the brands to support me to be able to get into the retailer. So after getting about 220 brands to sign that letter of support and intent, I brought that to Calgary Co-op, you know, a little uh, retailer in Calgary that had 24 locations at the time, but they were smart, operated by really good people. Um, their business was booming. They were doing great. And like I said, they were just good people, but they were also big enough where I could prove my concept made sense and small enough that my team of three could manage this in my basement. 
So we were off to the races. I went to Calgary Co-op and Dean Collins and the CEO, I threw the, basically the agreements on the table and said, I'll give you six month head start on Canada's easiest method of couponing, but you got to sign today. And Dean signed that deal. 60 days later, we had nearly 1,500 cashiers trained, and we were in their stores. That then allowed me the fortunate opportunity to then go raise another $5.5 million to then try and build and scale the business, um, which we then were able to get across the country. And then in an ugly transaction, it was acquired by uh, CGI and Yellow Pages, who formed a joint venture. And so when I left that business, I decided, you know, I'm going to, within 30 days, I was created Adbox Media. I was going to put 53-foot 3D ads on trailers because every business venture I had done, I had never carried forward my resources, my network. I always just jumped into a completely different industry that had nothing to do with the last one. So I was determined to utilize my resources. You know, I'd built all these relationships with brands through the couponing. I had the trucking company. So... What I did is the first company I went to was a frozen pizza company. I guess I should be careful with names. I got to be better at this. It was a frozen pizza company. I think they're the biggest in the planet now. And I said, I've got this idea to put these billboards on. I know you spend a lot of money on billboards on the highway. I've got trucks that'll be on the highway sitting in traffic just as long. That'll probably garner a lot more attention than that billboard in the distance. And I got a $150,000 deal my first kick at that can. And Peter, I then walked away from the business. So I got the trucks on the road. That company still has beautiful trucks on the road for free with the, the billboards, but I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't fulfilling and I didn't feel like I was serving any valuable purpose. I wasn't doing anything that was contributing to any real value. I was helping big companies get bigger. I wasn't helping people on an individual level. I wasn't contributing to society in a positive way that made me feel like I was a positive contributor and I walked away from the business. I just had no passion for it. It wasn't that it wasn't working. In fact, I'd never had a business that worked that quickly, um, but I wasn't passionate about it. So I left that business behind. And then up until 2020, you know, I, I, I basically spent three years trying to figure out what I wanted to do because I wanted to find purpose. You know, I helped one of the biggest, um, let's call it digital marketing companies in the country, um, build their coupon platform. They're very popular. They also have they're the leader in the newspapers, just to give you an idea who it might be. You know, I built their coupon platform for them. Again, didn't, it wasn't fulfilling. There were just checks. And then I started to kind of get a little bit down and started to, I don't know if I was facing depression or not, but I started to get really nervous about like, what was I doing? I wasn't adding value. I felt like I was constantly contributing to people's victories um, but it wasn't serving real purpose. So when the pandemic hit, and my brain just went, this is it. This is my reset. This is my chance to do something good. And I have uh, messages that I sent out to people saying, like, this is the time. The opportunity will arise in this. And I had uh, conceptualized the grocery neighbor. And to my surprise, I mean, millions of people voted, thousands of franchisee requests, hundreds of investors. And now I'm building this thing. And what I realized, Peter, is it's, it's more than an opportunity to build a real business. The amount of food deserts that are out there, the amount of people that are impacted by a lack of options, it's crazy. And, and, and I have to be honest, Peter, 
wasn't my original intention. Like I didn't know. I, I was I was almost not privy to the solution. What I thought I was solving was this COVID situation. Here's a great formula that takes all of the risk out. It takes all the bad out of brick and mortar and brings the good. It takes all the bad out of online delivery and brings the good. But then through my endeavors, you know, food deserts contacting me and I realized, wait a minute, I have the option now to service the want or service the need. Well, I believe that the need also carries the want and there's probably a longer shelf life on that business if I service the people that need this versus the people that are going, ooh, it looks really cool. It's super exciting. I want to try it out. So, you know, my focus now is being in these more of these underserved areas, these communities that have to drive 10, 15 minutes, or in some cases, an hour, 30 minutes away to get their groceries. And that's kind of, you know, the birth of grocery neighbor. That's my, sorry, it was long-winded, but how I got to today. And now we've just won the Global Retail Innovation Award, the same award that Nike won last year and HEMA won the year before. So I'm just, I'm, I'm very grateful to be in the position I'm in. I feel very fortunate, super lucky. Um, had some really good people step up. Michael Dubbin, the guy who start, started Dollar Shave Club, and sold it for a billion dollars. You know, he's one of the people that reached out to me and said, like, is this thing real? What's going on? And having a conversation with him really helped me find my North Star. And then I was able to then go and raise some money from the likes of people like Freshy, you know, who provides a healthier option for fast food. Um, Shoeless Joe's, family-owned business, really good people. And that's kind of what I've been focused on, is just trying to find good people to bring this to life. And I'm really happy and proud to say that we're now bringing this thing to life and helping a lot of people. Frank, you are a serial entrepreneur. And now you've turned into a social entrepreneur and you are running a social enterprise and you are a social innovator. And these may be terms that you may not be overly familiar with, but you definitely are. And it's the street smarts that have made the difference in terms of what you've done. So give me an example of a franchisee in terms of what they do, how they get their customers, that kind of thing. Perfect. Yeah, so we're not an ice cream truck. We don't want to drive around and hope people will wave us down. We're dedicated to the neighborhoods that vote us in. So as a franchisee, the first thing we do is we give you the opportunity to make a recommendation. Because in a lot of cases, some of the franchisees that have come forward have said, hey, my neighborhood happens to be in an area where we're all driving 30 minutes away to get to a grocery store. I would love to own a grocery neighbor in my neighborhood. So where people bring forward their neighborhood, what we do is we canvas it for them because we don't, we don't want people to go out there and not succeed. And I know that might sound cheesy and cliche, but the strength of a scaling a franchise is based off of successful franchises. So the best way for me to sell a franchise is for me to say to somebody, don't ask me, call an existing franchisee. So today what we're offering franchisees is they'll get a territory that'll be supported by data. So it's not, hey, go and hope that people go there. It's no, there's a community that's excited about your arrival. So that's step one. We make sure that their perimeter, their territory makes a lot of sense for them. Two, we give them a turnkey solution. We're throwing you the keys to a mobile store. Now that comes with training, of course, but 
the requirement for you to go out and establish a model is not really there. That's what we're for. What we want to do is be able to provide a system that allows a franchisee to simply turn the key, enter the neighborhood that they're in, and play the role of being the brand ambassador. You know, you're really there to meet and greet people, to be people's friends, to make sure people feel good approaching if they have any questions because the store essentially runs autonomously. So a franchise role is really to be the ambassador, the face of this store and let us, you know, help you with the details, you know, as it relates to fulfillment, the data, consumer adoption, the technology. We really, really want this to be as easy as just being a Walmart greeter. Probably should say a grocery neighbor greeter. <laughs> so do, do you run a warehouse with all the foods and then you uh, deliver it to them? So the idea is, is that every seven units based off of a perimeter, we can successfully execute mobile fulfillment. So we're moving into mobile fulfillment. In the beginning, we yeah, this stationary, they got to pick up their food because it doesn't make sense to dedicate one full uh, unit to one store. Then one of them is generating revenue, one of them is not. We'll, we'll, we'll cannibalize ourselves. So the idea is, is every seven units, we deploy mobile fulfillment because one 53-foot mobile warehouse could fill, we could restock, sorry, I should use the right language, can restock seven stores. Remember, these stores only have the one wall and then there's storage under the belly box, but mobile fulfillment is the way to go. And Peter, I'll give you a little fun secret that we're, it's, I guess it's not a secret now, it'll be public, but one of the opportunities that I see is the ability to eclipse the online grocery world. And what I mean by that is, if you think about all the pain points of online delivery today, so the first and foremost is pricey. I got to pay minimum, I got to pay a delivery fee, and then there's a minimum spend requirement. Two, timing. If I'm not in a central hub, then I'm not getting my groceries within two hours. It could be actually be two days. And then three is the quality. Well, I don't know, have you ever seen the people that pick these orders? They're in a rush because they have tons of orders to pick. They're not curating it. They're not looking to make sure this apple's not bruised. Enter Grocery Neighbor. No matter how big Walmart or Amazon is, nobody's going to be physically closer to the consumer than us. Thus, the services we'll be able to offer these communities are the ability to get you groceries faster than you can get them yourself. Imagine a world where you order online groceries and they're on your doorstep within 20 minutes. Imagine a world where the person that picks them for you is a trusted neighbor or the franchisee. Thus, it's in their best interest to make sure you're getting good quality. But imagine a world where our format is so small that all the apples are good quality because we work with the local producers. And then cost? Well, why are we going to charge you for delivery? They're already there. So I really feel like there's an opportunity to just really shock the online grocery world with a model that, because remember, everyone's fighting for the last mile. All these big companies are thinking, how do we solve the last mile? Well, I know of a company right now that's going to live in the last mile, and that's us. And, you know, if, it, it, from, from my position, I just think that there's so much power that's going to come with this and opportunity to really help a lot of people. Think about disabled people, disabled communities that continually send us videos and messages about their journey. I had to get to a bus. And then I had to get into the store. And then I was only able to buy what I'm physically capable of carrying. That's sad. What we're actually doing in our communities is 
Anybody that is disabled, we offer a free delivery service. Don't stress about anything. We'll get it to you ridiculously quickly. Don't stress about that because even the even when you make it very convenient and easy for them to come out and access the service, we also don't want them to feel anything but a positive experience. We don't want them to feel like people are watching or anything like that. So we're trying to make this as, I guess, convenient as possible for people because the model's there. Like, we don't need to focus on making a ton of money. The model's there. People want to buy groceries. You know, there, There's been an argument that we should charge a premium service. My argument is, well, why? If it's not costing us more, then why are we going to charge more? Why can't we just charge the same price? Isn't that then still cheaper? Isn't that still cheaper than them having to spend their time, their fuel, wear and tear on their vehicle, risk mitigation, and you ever drive to the grocery store in a winter storm? You know, all these things. And, and in some cases, Peter, will be cheaper. Apples, nobody's going to beat us with apples. You'll buy a Honeycrisp apple, you'll buy them for $3.99 or $3.49 a pound at any store. You'll buy them for $1.99 from us. So there are categories where I think we can win. So, Frank, how many communities are you in? And because you have a lot to say, I'm going to combine it with another question. Where do you see yourself three years from now? Are you a build-to-sell operation, or are you going to continue to build? So how many communities and three years from now? So we've been voted into over 120 communities. There's over 120 communities that have voted in. It's millions of people, but I don't say the millions because they don't matter. If they're, if they're sporadic, then I can't count them. But if they are in a uh, concentrated area that we can actually create a community, then uh, they qualify. Right now, there's 125, 120 quality, qualified communities. So when you take all the people that have voted and we get rid of the ones that maybe aren't in close proximity of each other, it only ends up being 120 communities. Now, where am I in three years? My plan is to have at least 500 stores out there because I want 1,000 by five years. In terms of exiting the business, I'm a firm believer now, and I say this now because in my young, my mindset was different. Companies are bought. They're not sold. So what I mean by that is, you know, as soon as you go out and try and sell your business, your leverage is gone. Um, but if you just focus on building a good business, a profitable business, then I can promise you the buyers will come, especially in a capacity like this, where we are really disrupting a major industry. We're, we're creating a service that makes it hard to drive past. I mean, why would you? If we're there's this beautiful state-of-the-art store. It's got everything you need at the same prices, in some cases less, and it's right in your neighborhood. I, I just don't see why somebody's going to drive past that to drive 20 minutes to the big box store to buy the same stuff. It, it just, to me, I really see something special happening here, and I, I can imagine we'll be fielding offers by the three-year mark. I imagine people will be, you know, be coming in, but... I want to build something cool here. I want to build something special here. I don't want to be a part of something special. I want to, I want to make some impact. So I don't even know how to answer that question right now, Peter, because I've never been offered a billion dollars. So you know what I mean? It's hard, to, it's hard to say. Right now it's my baby. And, you know, when I, some of the people that I've met with and some of the money we've turned down is for the simple reason of their thought process was only green, whereas I believe it can be a bit of both. Like there is profitability in doing good. You can profit by doing good. So 
it's just, it depends on who it depends on where it lands. Right. Like I don't want to sell to the wrong person either. Maybe I'm having so much fun in three years that I don't want to sell. <laughs> so Frank, uh, how, how do people find out information to be a retail customer or a franchisee? Um, to be honest with you, we've spent zero dollars on marketing because when I, you know, when I picked up that phone and spoke with Diane Buckner at CBC and she decided to tell the story, it just caught fire. I mean, it trended on Apple News and it, it just caught fire. So the, the simple answer is our website is where we where we're getting all of the inquiries. You can put, you can vote on the website by just putting in your postal code and your email. We ask for your email so that we can notify you when your neighborhood has hit that threshold. Um, but so what's your website? Sorry, uh, www.groceryneighbor.com. One of the things that we're going to be introducing to Peter is I want to pay homage to the little guys. You know, I know firsthand how hard it is to get your idea to market. So on my stores, I'm actually creating a section called brand discovery. And it's a way to give local providers like, you know, like whether it's a CPG or a farmer or something gives them a shelf to get out there and get their voice out there. It gives them an opportunity to start getting into the ecosystem of a retailer and understanding what that velocity looks like. It gives them that exposure and removes that, real challenge of getting into the big box retailers, but while also giving the communities who access to these cool products that they never would have come across. Um, and that's kind of my way of trying to help the little guys, but also creating this exciting little section in the store where there's always something unique and different. Well, we've had uh, quite a conversation hearing the life story of Frank and the many businesses he's part of. So thank you very much, Frank. Appreciate your time and listening to a very unique story. Thank you very much for listening to me. Sorry for speaking so much. <laughs>